I have some good news for you this morning, and that is that the passage we're looking at is only 15 verses long, so a little bit of a difference from the past, I don't know, seven weeks, Uh, but we're going to be looking at Revelation 20 this morning. I want to invite you to give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their, numbers, their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they, were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. From his present earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would send your spirit to minister to Jesus to our hearts today. And wherever we're coming from, uh, believing, not believing, not sure what we believe, Would you be with us and would you change us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, week 14, and we've finally arrived at Revelation 20, which I know some of you have been licking your chops going, I can't wait to see what they do with this. And uh, I just want to say up front, we need to approach this text with a great deal of humility. It's highly contested, and that's okay. People who love the Bible have different takes on this. And it's important to note that those takes are incompatible. Uh, So somebody's not right. And maybe all of us aren't right. And we have things to learn from one another. So I want to approach this uh, humbly by saying there there are things we can learn from each view. Because each view might have things that it's blind to. So we could look for places of agreement. And we can work on agreeing to disagree. But most importantly, 
I think that we can find common ground in this. And this is the quote that is in your bulletin. The best is yet to come. The future is not up for grabs. And the future is not in our hands. Now, this sermon is going to feel a little bit like a bad joke because the real punchline of it is next week when we get to Revelation 21. But we're going to try to inch our way there, and I think that we're going to see that God has a lot for us in this text. Now, my job this morning is to preach a sermon, not give a lecture. So I'm not going to use fancy words like premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, and I'm definitely not going to use pre-mill, post-trib rapture. Okay, because it it begins to sound like you're ordering some kind of fancy coffee beverage. You know, I'd like a grand iced mocha oat milk latte with heavy cream, please. You know, and and I don't want to I don't want to go there. So what what I want to do is I want to give you some interpretive keys up front. And by now you should be getting used to this. We've done this almost every sermon. But I want to give you a few keys that will help us as we work our way through this passage. And the first the first interpretive key is this, a thousand years, and you can, you, can, you can probably say this with me by now, is not a statistic, it's a what? It's a symbol, it's a symbol, right? It's a catchphrase, and you find it throughout the Bible, right? What, is, what does God say? He says that my mercy, my steadfast love is for a thousand generations. Or how about this one, Psalm 50, verse 20. It says, the Lord owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And we're not supposed to say, well, maybe one day he will own all of them, right? We understand a thousand years is this phrase. It's meant to just be like this, this complete and full image, right? And a thousand years is used six times in these verses. It's the only place in the Bible that speaks of Jesus reigning for a thousand years, So we should probably be very careful about building an entire theology of the end times on this single text. And as we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, we know that that 10, like 7, is this number of fullness and completion. And what is 1,000? It's 10 to the third power, right? It's like really, really complete, really, really full. And this is important because the 1,000-year period that is brought up here describes the reign of Christ and of the martyrs and saints in heaven. And I believe that this is something that is happening right now. Hold on to that, okay? Second interpretive key is this. As we've gone through the book of Revelation, and Iron reminded us of this a couple of weeks ago and did a great job, is, uh, is the, the, the technique of recapitulation. Going over the same period of time again and again, but with different camera angles. And there's a technical term that scholars use to describe how the book of Revelation is is structured, and it's called progressive parallelism. And, And all it means is this, is you can't read the book of Revelation like it's just chronological from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 22. In fact, you're going to tie yourself in all kinds of knots if you try to do that. And one of, the, one, of the, one of the clues that we shouldn't read it that way is John's refrain in the book of Revelation is not, and then this happened, and then next this happened, and then next this happened. His refrain is, and then I saw, and then I saw, and then I saw. 
In other words, it's not what happens next. It's what John sees next. And figuring out the chronology, you're going to have to look elsewhere rather than the order of the text. And this is important because Revelation chapter 20, which we're looking at this morning, is not what happens next after chapter 19, verse 11 through 21, which we're skipping over and you'll see why. It's what John saw next. And if you notice, the first word in our text is, and then I saw. Revelation keeps telling the story from Christ's first coming to his coming again, over and over again, covering the same stretch of time from different camera angles. So think about it like a, a, a replay of a touchdown. You get the pylon cam, you get the end zone view, you get the overhead view, and you're looking at it from all the different angles, but it's looking at the same event or sets of events. And this is done to use imagery that grabs hold of our hearts and calls us to live differently. So it's parallel, but as you get closer to the end of the book, you do get more and more focus on what happens at the actual end, and we'll see that this morning. It's progressive parallelism. Y'all following me? Great. All right, those are two interpretive keys. Now I want to raise a question this morning. And uh, I get this from Nancy Guthrie's book. And the question is, what does it mean to be on the right side of history? You heard that phrase? Now I did a little research on this. It started being used in the 20th century, somewhere around the 1930s. Uh, but it gets batted around all the time nowadays. People use it to criticize certain political opinions and to bolster, bolster their own views, right? You're on the wrong side of history. I'm on the right side of history. But if you slow down for a second, you only know you're on the right side of history if you know where history is going. So where is history headed? And who can tell us? Only God can, because only God holds history in his hand. But the good news is this, he has. And I, I want to highlight three things from our text this morning about the direction of history. And those three things are this. The gospel is advancing to all the nations. Satan will go down forever. And everyone will pass through the final judgment. That's where history is headed. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's start first with the gospel is advancing. And in fact, uh, I'm going to put it this way. The gospel is gathering people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is the direction that history is going. Look, look with me at verse 1 of chapter 20. John begins, then I saw. This is a new camera angle. And what he sees is an angel coming down from heaven, grabs the dragon, which is Satan, binds him, throws him into a pit for a thousand years. And this is where things get really weird in evangelical circles. Okay? So the key phrase that I want to focus in on is the binding of Satan. And the critical question we have to ask is this. What does the binding of Satan stop Satan from doing? And it's actually right here in the text. Verse 3, he is bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years is up and he's released for a little while. 
And what does he do when he's released from captivity briefly? Verse 8, he goes to deceive the nations. It's not that he has no influence or impact on the world during this period of time, but he is bound in a specific way to no longer deceive the nations. So the question is, when does this happen? Is this something that we're to be looking forward to, expecting in the future? Or is this something we're experiencing right now? Maybe we should ask, when did this happen? And here's what I want to do. Uh, If you were here for Revelation uh, chapters 12 and 13, you remember the camera angle that John was given. and, 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 And we were told the story of how the dragon got bounced. Remember, he got thrown down from heaven. And when did that happen? It happened with the birth of Jesus. John is getting wild visions that depict themes we actually see throughout the Gospels. And so hang with me here because this is really, really important. When you look at the Gospel of Mark, early in Jesus' ministry, he's casting out demons. He's getting lots of attention. And people start saying, he's in league with the devil. That's how he's able to do this kind of stuff. And Jesus says, a house divided against itself will fall. And then he tells this brief little parable. This is Mark chapter 3, verse 27. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man. It is the same word that we find in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. How about the gospel of Luke chapter 10? Jesus sends out the 72 to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And they come back and they are just jazzed up. They're like, the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Not I will see, but I saw when you were going out and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. It is similar imagery as the bouncing of the dragon in Revelation 12. Or how about this, Gospel of John? We're working our way through all the gospels here. Chapter 12, Jesus is doing his thing amongst amongst a group of Greeks, Gentiles, the nations. And he says... Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, that's a reference to the cross, will draw all men and women to myself. Draw all peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Similar themes to the book of Revelation. And then finally, the gospel of Matthew. At the very end, chapter 28, after Jesus has died... And been raised from the dead, he tells his disciples, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Even the Apostle Paul, and we saw this earlier in our liturgy, described the death of Jesus as disarming the rulers and the powers and authorities in Colossians 2. So what does all this mean? It means that we should understand the thousand years... To be a period of time that starts with the incarnation and ministry of Jesus Christ. And the binding of Satan is something he accomplished through his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection from the dead. It's saying the world can be evangelized because Jesus has bound the great deceiver and he can no longer deceive the nations. We've grown comfortable with the fact that churches are filled with Gentiles. 
We've grown comfortable with the fact that there are churches in every nation across the world. But for centuries and centuries before Jesus, the people of God was located in one nation, Israel. And from time to time, others got folded in, but by and large, the nations were deceived. And then, one day, the incarnation of the Son of God, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, you know what happens? Kaboom! The gospel starts going everywhere. Read the letters of the New Testament. It goes to Philippi. It goes to Rome. It goes to Ephesus. Read the book of Acts. It grabs hold of early Europeans and Asians and Ethiopians. The nations are coming to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the work of Jesus Christ. That is the direction history is going because Christ has bound the strong man. Now... Some of you are feeling this objection in your hearts right now. What about all that talk a few weeks ago about how we have an enemy who hates us and is seeking to destroy us? If Satan's bound, like, what about all that? And and I love this image. He's like a mob boss in prison awaiting execution. And you know about, you know, drug cartel lords and mob bosses. They're still able to do a good bit of dirty work outside the prison walls through their minions. And what have we seen in the book of Revelation? We've seen the beast from the sea, political power seeking to crush the church. We've seen the beast from the earth, right? Religious and spiritual deception seeking to corrupt the church. We've seen the great prostitute, Babylon the great, seeking to seduce the church to worldliness. And there are casualties. But while there are casualties... The gospel is still going forth to the nations and gathering people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Look around you in this room. Look around you at history. Look all over the book of Revelation. Revelation is filled with pictures and images of people from every nation worshiping the lamb who sits on the throne. That is the image that is meant to grab hold of our hearts That is where history is headed. But please note, and this is really important, this isn't triumphalism. This isn't domination. And it sure ain't Christian nationalism. Okay? Because meanwhile, John says in verse 4, and I also saw another camera angle on this a thousand years. He saw thrones in heaven. Who's on them? Martyrs. People are losing their heads literally during this season of Satan's binding. That's what verse four, second half of verse four says. Notice, same thousand year period, those who've been beheaded are reigning with Christ in heaven, which means though Satan is bound, and I just don't know another way to put it, he can still raise hell. But even if his minions take your head off, you will reign. And the gospel will go forward to the nations. That's a theme throughout. Look, Satan can still wreak havoc, but he cannot stop the spread of the gospel. We've seen this in the book of Revelation already. That the suffering of the saints is actually what God uses to spread the seed of the gospel all around. We saw that in Jesus' message 
to the church at Philippi, I mean, at, at Philadelphia. We saw that in Revelation 12 through 14, where it talked about those who didn't even count their lives worthy to hold on to, but remained faithful to the word of the testimony and to the blood of the Lamb. Verses 4 through 6 here take us behind the scenes of Satan's havoc and tell us Christ still reigns even now. And so do those who have died remaining faithful to him. Those who have died reign. Even if they died because of faithful witness to Jesus. Imagine the comfort that this was to those who watched their loved ones tortured and murdered. Which was happening in the first century. And by the way, it's happening right now in various places across the world. Suffering for Christ ends in glory. It results in reigning with Jesus. And John says this is the first resurrection. Why does he say first? Because there's another. This isn't the ultimate destiny. It says John sees souls. How he saw souls, I don't know, right? Ask somebody else. But there is only one right now who has a glorified body, and that is Jesus. But he is the first fruits of a resurrection harvest. Satan is bound and the saints reign. The souls of martyrs and all deceased believers who didn't succumb to worship the beast, it says, or have his mark, are enjoying the victory now. But this is, this is what I want us to take away. You should expect to suffer. We've, we, we have this thing in our heads. It's like, well, if Jesus really reigns, then I shouldn't suffer. There should not be hardship. And that is not the way the Bible teaches us to expect life will go. That on the one hand, it says it's going to be hard. And there will be things that that make you make costly choices out of allegiance to Jesus. But you need to know that even if you lose your head, you will reign with him in heaven. Until that day when resurrection glory is given to you. And through your faithful witness, the gospel will go forward to the nations. The gospel is going to the nations. But by and large, it goes through the sacrificial witness of the saints. That's the first thing. That's where history is headed. And that is the pathway to get there. But here's, you ready for some good news? Here's the second thing. Satan's going to be taken down forever. Notice verse 7. And this is, we get a chronological note here. However long this thousand year period is, right? And it's symbolic. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. Release of Satan for a very brief time. He gathers his army, but it's a joke. Okay, this is... You know, all the apocalyptic movies and stuff have the great battle of Armageddon, you know, and and you think, okay, this is it, the great battle. And it's like the battle that was not. Okay, this is an Avengers endgame, right? Which is awesome, by the way. But this, it's over before it begins. Though the world harnesses all its strength against the church, the attack fails miserably. And John has already given us A few pictures, a few camera angles on this final battle that was not. It's the same as the battle of Armageddon in chapter 16. As the war on the Lamb in chapters 17 and 19. Paul, by the way, writes about this in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. And in his depiction, Jesus puffs his breath and evil is gone forever. 
And what we're told here is the dragon, also known as Satan, is the last member of the unholy trinity to be dealt with. The two beasts, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth, are thrown into the lake of fire, and so is he. And as we saw last week, the great prostitute Babylon on the ground also gets eliminated. And you know what we see in the book of Revelation after chapter 20? No more devil. No more devil. Revelation 21, which I can't wait to get to, shows us a world without him. And you know what a world without him is like? No more lies. No more deception. As one of my friends put it, an air of undiluted truth forever. Jesus is going to clean house. And he's cleaning house to make room for a world made new. How do you enter a world like that? And that leads us to the last thing. There's only one way. You have to pass through the final judgment. And here it is. Everyone will pass through the final judgment. Verses 11 through 15. John says, then I saw... What did he see? A great white throne. And it's a, it's a sobering scene. A great white throne with someone sitting on it. And it's so overwhelming that it says earth and sky fled away. It's like they're trying to hide, recognizing they're unfit to be in the presence of such holiness. And then John sees the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And I love this image. And books are open books. A book for every person who ever lived. A book on every person and everything they've thought, said, and done. Books. But notice, another book is opened. It's called the book of life. And understanding the difference between the books and the book is going to be pretty key. But here's what we need to take to heart. Everyone will one day stand before God and give an account of their life. You, me, everyone. This is the consistent witness of Jesus and the whole New Testament. Paul talks about it in Romans 14, verses 10 through 12. He talks about it again in 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Jesus, by the way, talked about it a great deal. And you can see that in the Gospels. There will be a final accounting, a final reckoning, because God is a God of justice. Now, let me turn the heat up a little bit more. It will be according to your deeds. Notice what John says. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. And just so we don't miss the point, John says it again with greater clarity. Verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead. I mean, it's just like a full, you know, uh, onslaught of everyone who ever lived. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they have done. No one will be overlooked. No one gets a, a free pass. Great and small, it says. Neither salvation nor judgment is according to social class or where you rank. It's according justice. And the books are going to be opened. This is what Daryl Johnson writes. Everything is there. Nothing is forgotten. The court has all the evidence it needs. It is all right there. 
Public deeds, private deeds, public attitudes, private attitudes. Jesus says, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in the inner rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And I'm going to turn it up one more dial. (laughs) Every careless word, Jesus says. I want you to imagine if when you came in this morning, you had to hand over your phone to the elders. I don't know. That sounds ominous, right? You have to hand over your phone and we had AI run through all your texts and pull up the most salacious and careless words that you have used about people. And they were put up on the screen for everyone to see. So we saw Kathy Jenke and we saw the list and we saw Iron Kim, right? In the list, I got to pick on like staff people, right? Your hateful words, your hurtful words, your dismissive words, your slanderous words. Books are going to be opened and we will all give an account of our lives before God who is holy. And you know what it says? It says... In verse 14, the death and Hades are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And so are those names who are not written in the book of life. This is where the evil trinity, the dragon and the two beasts were thrown, by the way. And the lake of fire is a symbol, a symbol of regret and searing anguish. This is the final judgment. It is the place where our history ends and a new history begins. The history of a new heaven and a new earth, which we'll get to Next week. Now, I'm not going to do one of those asides of explaining why uh, judgment is good and justice is good because Iron's done it like five times already. So go back and listen to his sermons. It's really important. What I want you to notice is this there is another book besides your book, and it's called the Book of Life, and it's open too. We've heard of this book before. In chapter 13, verse 8, it was called the Lamb's Book of Life. And the names written in it were written before the foundation of the world, which means if your name is, is in it, it was written before you believed. Your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And honestly, this is the best news for sinners like you and me. Because honestly, which of us can really gain confidence by looking at the choices we have made? We have a long history of foolishness and selfishness and sinfulness and carelessness. But God, by his grace, can overcome all that. If you're worried your name isn't in there, by the way, it probably most likely is. Because it means your heart has been awakened by the gospel. And you're like, I am desperate for a way to deal with the evil that is in me. But I want you to think about this image. If your name is in that book, if you are in Christ, when your book is opened, there's going to be a whole lot of red strike throughs over every evil deed, over every careless word, over every hurtful, harmful thought, over every evil desire. And it's going to be written over it, covered By the blood of the lamb. You know what else is going to be there? There's going to be many highlights. 
over deeds you have done by the power of Jesus' spirit working in your life. Not because those somehow earn your way into heaven, but they publicly vindicate the authenticity of your faith. Because deeds show where your trust is. And none of us is perfect in our believing. But for those who have been written in the Lamb's book of life, it's going to show up. It's going to show up in some way. And maybe it's going to show up by your repentance. (laughs) Confessed this, repented of that, told this person they were sorry, humbled themselves here when they recognized the mess that they had made. And what it says of us here that are written in the book of life is you will not experience the second death. You know, this is interesting. Uh, John uses the phrase second death, but he never uses the term first death in this passage. And John uses the phrase first resurrection, but he never uses the phrase second resurrection. So you're like, how does all this fit together? Well, first death is physical death. You know what first resurrection is, right? It's the coming to life and reigning now with Jesus if you're in him as a soul before you're reunited with your body. You know what the second resurrection is? It's when soul and body are reunited and they're transformed and you're ready to enter new creation. You know what the second death is? It's body and soul reunited. And going into eternal darkness. So there are two books. Well, actually, there's a billion books, but there are the books, and there is the book. When God opens your book, He won't have missed anything. Line after line, notation after notation, it's all there, and that's incredibly sobering. But if your name is written in the book of life, red strike throughs, highlights. Like, I'll be the first to say, you don't want to see the book on me. I don't want you to see it. <laughs> but you know what? It's going to be seen somehow in some, some way. And because Jesus has got a hold of me, it's going to be stamped all over the place with forgiven, pardon, canceled. Work in progress. The Lamb's book of life has his deeds, not ours. Which means you got to ask yourself a question. If you're going to one day give an account before God for everything, you can take your stand on your book or on his. You can say, God, judge me according to my deeds. Judge me according to the deeds of Jesus. What Revelation is inviting you to is to find your hope, your joy, your life. In the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Look, God holds history in his hand. He's the only one. And he's the only one who can tell us where it's going. And so he's the only one in reference to that we can know if we're on the right side of history. Where is history going? It's the advance of the gospel to the nations. Look around you in the world. And no, that's not triumphalism. It happens through the sacrificial witness of the saints right now. And even if you lose your head, you reign with him. Where is history going? The end of Satan forever. And next week, we're going to see a world without him. And it's headed towards a final reckoning. 
where you can either take your stand on your own book or on the Lamb's book of life that has his deeds. You want to be on the right side of history? It's not about being smart and it's not about being progressive and it's not about being conservative, by the way. It's about being connected to Jesus by faith because he wants to share his victory with you forever. I'm going to end with this quote uh, because I love it. And it's from G.K. Chesterton and it's from his book, The Everlasting Man. And he's looking at history from the perspective of of the Christian faith and its progress or not in the world. And he says at least five times the Christian faith has to all appearances gone to the dogs. But in each of these five cases, it was the dog that died. (laughs) Do you want to know why? Because Jesus reigns. He reigns right now. He has bound Satan so the gospel can go to the nations. Right? He is rescuing his people who die in allegiance to him. Who hold on by faith. And don't worship the beast or receive its mark. Right? He's going to take Satan down. And he's going to eliminate it forever. And he's going to purify us through his own blood. So that when we pass through judgment, it is the preparation to enter a world made new. And I can't wait to talk about that next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so good beyond our imaginations. And we thank you for your word. We thank you that you reign even now and that one day uh, we will see the application of your victory everywhere. We thank you that by your blood and through your deeds, We can be accounted righteous on that great day. Not because of anything in us, but because of all that you are for us. And we ask that you would order our lives by faith according to the direction that history is going. Lord, we need you by your spirit to do that in us. To make us a people made new, to prepare for a world made new. We ask this in your name. Amen.